0: Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox, The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.
1: What I can tell you is that I get a lot of emails from people who have just gotten out of prison um, who appreciate the book. Welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David
0: Temple. And on today's 162nd episode of The Thriller Zone, I am jazzed to spend some time with one of the funniest, most engaging, and quite possibly one of the most educated authors to ever grace this podcast. Mr. Todd Goldberg joins us to discuss his latest novel, Gangsters Don't Die. As you'll quickly see, Todd, part of the Lee and Todd Goldberg Hall of Fame, is a dream guest because not only does he deliver the laughs, but he's one of the most natural storytellers you'll ever meet, as you'll see. Our conversation covers a variety of topics, including Todd's prolific writing career, covering 15 best-selling novels, many of which wrap around the world of gangsters. We'll also hear some of Todd's magic as to how he approaches writing characters. And perhaps a favorite part of the show is when Todd shares his thoughts on Happy Endings, Besides being a terrific writer, he's also a popular professor and directs the low-residency MFA program at UC Riverside. There is a lot of ground to cover in a very little time, so let's get to it. Please welcome my new friend, Todd Goldberg. Uh, Where did you get a head cold in uh, in the desert?
1: Well, I am the director of a low-residency MFA program where there were 100 students. Here in the desert, up until yesterday at 1 p.m. And oh, wow. every single one of them at some point hugged me. <laughs> <laughs> that is where I acquired this. That's what you in the desert that's going around. It's either plastic surgery or a head cold at all times. Well, it's either,
0: it's because you're such a huggable
1: guy that you. Uh... Well, that is also true. Yeah. <laughs> well, welcome to the Thriller there's... Zone. Thank you. I've been looking forward to it. I can't believe you haven't had me on previously. What the fuck? <laughs>
0: <laughs> what the f? Indeed, sir. Well, it's funny when I ran into you at Bashircon. I was like, "How could?" It, and I think I said this to you. How could I not have had you on yet?
1: It's surprising, frankly. I
0: know. I know. I know. Uh, kick me in the shorts. Well, I I know, especially since I had your brother on, and you were probably thinking, "Oh."
1: Well, here's here's what I've learned over the many years of being Lee's brother. Yes, it is okay to follow him, provided uh-huh. I'm better looking, skinnier, and funnier, and that's always been the case.
0: See, <laughs> <laughs> to this very day, <laughs> I I I've got many things to talk about. Of course, we're talking about gangsters uh, don't die. We're we're gonna be talking about this, but there, I in a, this is a crazy question. And it's kind of more rhetorical. I said this to my wife. I'm like, I don't know how. And this is going to sound like I'm blowing it right up your skirts. So just bear with me. But I'm like, how did so much talent get in two guys, two <laughs> brothers of all things? Because you guys are pretty dang prolific with your work.
1: Well, and it's not just the two of us. We also have two siblings, um, sisters, uh-huh. who are equally prolific. We have uh, my sister, Linda, who is an artist. Um, and you've seen her work all over the world. You just don't realize it. Um, and my sister, Karen, who's a lawyer who spends a lot of time defending me and Lee. Um, but Linda and Karen have written several books together about art. Um, so between the four of us, it's a tremendous amount of books. You know, I, I think part of it, you know, we comes from our parents for sure. We had, we had very creative parents. Um, our mother, was a journalist and wrote books about divorce because she'd done it a lot. Uh, Our dad was a TV newsman. So, you know, the written word was always a part of our family. But sort of, you know, historically as Jews, um, there's always been an appreciation in our family culturally for reading and writing and for expression. Sure. That Lee and I have turned it into a murder business. Yeah. That that might be something about trauma or about the need to settle chaos in our own lives. Um, but I often think, like, if Lee hadn't done it first, would would I have fallen into this? Or would I have become quarterback for the Raiders, first straight for the A's? <laughs> Both of those things seem like distant thoughts. Sure. Because I'm still 5'10 and Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, our entire family is a bunch of storytellers. Every single one of us. And even the unpublished ones are storytellers. Wow. Well, your parents must be proud. Well, I hope so. If you hear from them, let <laughs> us know. It's a long distance call. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll accept charges. Um, well, we we met at BoucherCon. I'm very excited about that. Um um, and this book, I'm going to get to it. I want to drill down, but I, I, I knew I was going to do rising stars for December. And when we bumped into each other, I thought, oh, how am I going to, how am I going to work Todd in? I want to get him as close to his launch, but I'd already think had everything stacked up. I didn't want to wait till next year. Cause then you'd look at me like, really, Dave, you want to wait till 24. So I'm basically shoehorning you in December. However, you're kind of the dun, 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 on our rising stars month even though of course you are already in your own galaxy i am i am my own satellite <laughs> and the funny thing is we dropped the shows on mondays and i was going to drop you on monday because i know you celebrate christmas so i just thought i must have to push him off to tuesday to really give him the biggest bang for his buck
1: perfect perfect i appreciate that <laughs> but you know what though it's interesting this book of mine um you know, it's, it's actually the fourth book in a trilogy. Cause I did three novels and a short story collection, but in terms of you shoehorning me into the rising stars, even though it's, I've written 15 books. Yeah. Um, these four books really changed my career. You know, each one, um, each one did something else for me. Um, you know, in this book, you know, I'd never been an Amazon best book of the year. I got that the other day. Um, you know, I'm sure I'll lose a bunch of awards to Sean Cosby later in the year. I look forward to that. Um, cause that's what happens every book I have. Sean puts out a book at the same time and then I lose an award to him. Not that I'm angry. Not that I'm angry with that no. young man. No, there's no not bitterness.
0: And, and he did not make the
1: cover. So he did. he's right there on the top. That's yeah. all I, so I figured they, they'd let me win one award when he's up for something. Um, but I, I do feel like these books change the, um, change the, uh, the way my career was going for sure, but also, uh, changed the way I was viewed by, um, by my peers. And that's, you know, that's a nice thing.
0: Well, you know, when you handed it to me and, and I don't know why I didn't get you to autograph it. So next time I see you, I'll get you to do that. But when you handed it to him, like, Oh, I, I can't wait because I love gangsters, mobs. And I, as I was preparing, I'm like, wait a minute, let me think about this. I'm, I'm going back to all the movies that I grew up. Watching that I loved. I mean, let's look at it. Godfather in seventy two and seventy-four, right. once upon a time America, eighty-four, Goodfellas, probably maybe my all-time favorite, if not the second. Love and it. Yes. Miller's Crossing. And there's there's mm-hmm. a dozen I could do, but those are like the four big ones that came came to me. And I thought my my rising question, both for you kind of and for myself and for my listeners, you know, what do you think it is that makes this obsession with gangster stories? Uh, especially you i mean this is you said number 4 right in a, i love this four in a trilogy <laughs> so i'm trying to go is that a new is phrase that
1: i quartets? <laughs>
0: uh a sync uh, that would be fine it? But anyway what do you think this is How,
1: have we just always we've always been this way haven't, though, haven't we yeah you know i i've given a lot of thought to this over the years because i you know the the movies you just listed are also all of my favorite movies um and I'm both fascinated and repelled by organized crime. Um, you know, I'm, I am a, I'm a pacifist, of course, at heart. Um, but I'm interested in systems and closed ecosystems. And so I'm really interested in, in, you know, this notion of omerta, which we, we wouldn't know about unless all these gangsters opened their mouths and talked about it. Right. Um, you know, that's the worst secret organization on earth is organized crime. Um, but, you know, I, I think the reason Americans are so fascinated by the mafia and organized crime in general, it's street gangs also, is the notion of getting away with it. You know, we all like, I think the idea of the American dream, you know, go west and, you know, you know, white picket fence and all that has really changed to go west and get away with it. Right. You know, <laughs> how can you, how can you push the boundaries of the law so far that you can get away with it? And you know, you see that in everyday life. You see that in our political system, for sure. Um, And I I think each of us harbors a a fantasy of getting away with it, whatever it might be. It might be stealing a pack of gum. It might be um, blowing up your neighbor's car if they leave the garbage cans out too late. Not that I'm saying I do that. Um, You know, whatever it is, that idea of being just on the line of criminality um, is appealing to us. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a big part of our fascination with organized crime. But also, as organized crime has slipped into the, the main part of our culture, and I think about this in you know, books, TV, movies, film, music, of course, you know, rap music is filled with, with gangster mythology. Um, it also is just like a lifestyle choice. Oh, I'm going to live like I don't give a fuck you know i'm gonna be tony soprano i don't give a fuck yeah but the problem is tony soprano gave a fuck yeah and michael corleone gave a fuck yeah all these guys that we look up to in our cinema jay-z you know right. all these people that we look to they reveal themselves because in fact they're not sociopaths they care about how they are perceived they care about their families they have things that they can lose And I think that becomes an appealing part of how we look at gangsters. They're not, they're not Jeffrey Dahmer. They're not going to eat your face. You know, they're not going to kill you unless you're in the game. I think that's, I think that's part of what makes them appealing to us.
0: So I know you live in the desert. I know a lot of this book takes place in the desert. Most of your books in this gangster uh, trilogy took place in the desert. And I'm wondering how close did you have to get to the topic in your research?
1: Well, th- thank you for asking this question. It's an important part of my life. Um, I am, in fact, a gangster. No, I'm not. I'm, not, I'm neither a gangster nor a rabbi. Um, but I think probably more like a gangster than a rabbi. Um, well, So here's the thing. I live in Palm Springs, and Palm Springs has always been a city that's uh, a mob-run city. It's, a, it's an open city. And what that means is that um, the mafia can operate here without the, the normal sort of tribal lines. Like you're not going to, the Gambinos aren't going to do business with the Bananas, etc. Chicago Outfit isn't going to do business with the Memphis Mafia, all that stuff. But here, as long as you don't cross anyone in business, you can operate without a problem. And they won't kill you in the desert, which is an, an important part of it. There hasn't been a mob killing in the desert in I think, 70 years, something like that. But I grew up... Um, <laughs> I grew up with kids whose last name were Bonanno and Zangari. And, um, you know, they were the the grandsons or nephews or the cousins of all of these gangsters. Um, and so, you know, that, that was always a big part of my childhood. And my mom um, liked to date sort of C-level crime bosses and B-level actors. Like, that was her... She always dated guys that owned, like, suit stores or tuxedo companies or limousine shops. Mm -hmm. There was this one guy she dated. This guy actually wasn't a gangster, but I've never forgotten this. He owned his own limousine. And this was actually when I was a little kid up in Northern California. He owned his own limousine, and he'd pull up in front of our house to take our mom out on a date. But in order to impress the neighbors... He'd climb through the window between the driver's seat and the back seat, So he could get out the back seat Like he wasn't driving it. This oh. is the kind of person my mom dated. <laughs> so that was always a part of our lives, you know? Oh. Um, and then I, I lived in Vegas for a little while and that was a very, you know, real part of living in Las Vegas. The mafia is yeah. alive and well in that city for sure. Um, but I've always, you know, I've always been fascinated with it. Um, what I can tell you is that I get a lot of emails from people who have just gotten out of prison, um, who appreciate the books. The last time I, I had an interaction with an actual gangster um, <clears throat> who seemed verifiable, I was doing a book signing at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas, which is a bizarre place when you think about it. Like, a yeah. museum dedicated to organized crime. It's very bizarre. And, and, you know, it's a historical building. It's where the 1954 hearings were held with, you know, that's just Kefauver and everything. But anyway, I was doing this event, and there was a dude at the back of the room, you know, in a sweatsuit. And, you know, he's watching and listening and nodding his head and shaking his head the whole time. And he gets in the back of the line to get his book signed, and he comes through. And he says, hey, I heard you on NPR this morning, because I'd been on MP- local NPR that morning. I was like, right. oh, great. He's like, yeah, I was taking my kid to work or to <laughs> school. And I heard you, and uh, you know, I liked the way you talked about us. I think you gave us respect. And I was like, what is happening? Yeah. I'm talking to. And he says, you know, we're not we're not bad guys. We're just in a different business. And right. I was like, yeah. Well, okay. He's like, yeah. and you, you seem to understand the sense of humor. Like, you know, it's a lot of bullshit. And I was like, yeah. Well, okay and he's like so uh yeah i came by to, to pay respect and get a book i was like that that's that's great i was like well who'd you like me to sign this to he's like tommy d and i said is that d-e-e or is that just d he's like just d like, tommy d it is
0: oh my god well this is all right i'm gonna say i was gonna say it for a little bit later this is one of my favorite books of the year todd i'm not <laughs> even. You. I'm not saying that because you're just here. It's the minute I picked it up, it it does everything I want in a book. Well, uh, here's how I'm going to start. There's two things there's the first line and almost the last line. Not the last line of the story because that would really F it up, but. Yes, it would. (laughs) So the first line if dark Billy Cupertine had to kill a guy, he preferred to do it up close with his bare hands. (laughs) Well, I'm in for the ride. I don't care what else you say. (laughs) <laughs> and then my last thing, it's down here in acknowledgment, so it's perfectly safe. But one of my favorite things you said, and you you just referred to it a second ago, I'm not a mobster, nor a rabbi, nor an employee of a funeral home. So before you write to tell me I got something wrong, I know. I make stuff up to suit my purposes. Beautiful. Thanks, sir. Thank you. But that prologue, the prologue alone, just the pro- folks, it's worth buying the book for the <laughs> prologue. And it's only like 10 I couldn't read the next line because it's so rattled with profanity my uh, if my mother were listening god rest her soul. So it's just it is it is one of my top 10 favorite books. My wife comes to me and and my, people who have listened to the show know this all the time. Tammy will usually swing through the room when I'm really engrossed in one and I usually get up really early to read so I can bang out a lot of volume when it's quiet and she goes how you like it I'm like oh, I'm like, babe, this is non-stop. I'm like, it's up there with, and I would say this if you weren't even sitting there. I'm like, this is up there with, it's up there with good fellas because it's the personalities that are so big. And Sal Cupertine, you you despise him and you love him all at the same time, which is one of the most unique and promising traits that an author like yourself can do, that you can make me detest and love the guy simultaneously.
1: Right. And that that was the goal from the first book on. You know, it, it was a real challenge to... I, I knew that I wanted to write three books, I, sh- I should say. So when I wrote Gangsterland, which came out almost 10 years ago now, it came out wow. in 2014, I knew that I wanted to write a character that would flip the paradigm in a crime novel you know i was going to have a hitman who kills innocent people um, be pursued by an fbi agent who's also a good guy for the most part Mm -hmm. and by the end of the book make you root for the hitman to kill the fbi agent yeah and like that's not that's not how it works you know that's not how these books work and so it was a real challenge and a constant challenge in writing the Sal Cupertine character to make him both believable as a terrible human being and believable as a person that you could root for and love. And third part, make him into a good rabbi eventually. Yeah. Um, and, and <laughs> you know, I absolutely loved writing that character. Um, you know, it, it it's hard to end a series, um, like this with a character that i that i've enjoyed so much writing but i also came to the point where i was like I, if i do it any longer it's just going to become pastiche you know yeah. and i didn't want that i wanted to tell a full story about this character um and maybe leave a door open for something else down the line you never yeah. know you know i'm not i'm not dumb um <laughs> but to end this chapter of his life in a believable way and in a way where he has an arc that reveals him to be something more than himself. And that was such a challenge. But I got to tell you, a thing happened to me during the writing of the books that also changed my approach to, um, to this book specifically. Um, so this is a, a slightly long story, but you'll have to bear with me. I got all the time in the world. Um, so the main adversary for Sal Cupertine, Rabbi David Cohen, in this book, is an FBI agent named Christy Levine. And she actually appears in my book, The Low Desert, also, in a short story called Mazel, where in that short story you find out that she has cancer and that she's going to die, and she goes to the cemetery where Rabbi David Cohen works and buys a funeral plot from him. So it's a, it's a very weird short story because as readers, it's not from rabbi Cohen's perspective as all the other books are. It's from her perspective. And you know, if she says the wrong thing as an FBI agent to this rabbi that he's going to fucking kill her. Right. Um, so that's like, that's a whole other tension in that short story. Well, that character is based on uh, a friend of mine, um, a friend I never met in real life. Uh, her name was Christy Cade. And Christy was my number one fan for my entire career. Um, when my first book came out, Fake Liar Cheat, it got terrible reviews that that it earned, that it deserved, I should know. <laughs> and this was this was 23 years ago, I should wow. tell you. And I don't remember if I found her on the internet or she found me. I feel like probably I found her because I was looking for good reviews. And she had written like this glowing review of my book on her live journal. This is how long ago it was. It was on her live journal. She was 20 years old. And so we started this correspondence for two decades. Um, When I met her, she was a single mom. She would just gotten out of a marriage. She had a daughter. She had dropped out of high school. But she loved reading books. And she just started talking to me about books. We just sort of had this long correspondence about books and writing. And eventually she went back to school, she got her degree, she went and got her master's degree, she became, I I believe she was the registrar at a local college in Tampa, her her uh, son became her daughter. You know, every life change you could possibly have happened. She met a man that she really loved who ended up committing suicide. And we wrote back and forth to each other, first via email, then via social media, for decades. And she was just this lovely person. And I introduced her to my friends who are writers. And she started reading all their books and talking to them on the internet. She she was just, she was great. And, uh, you know, I've been speaking of her in past tense, so you know where this is going. Um, But she wrote me when I was writing the book, The Low Desert. And so what I would do, and I would finish a book because she was my number one fan, is I would just email her the book. I just email her the manuscript. So she had read the previous, you know, 14 books that I had written in manuscript. And she knew I was writing the short story collection, The Low Desert. And she said, "Um, I've got a rare cancer. I don't know if I'm going to live to see The Low Desert. Will you send me the stories as you write them? And I said, absolutely. Absolutely. So I started doing that. I started sending her the stories. And then one day she wrote me and she said, maybe you can use this. She said, something incredible happened to me today. And I said, okay. And so we were chatting on Facebook. And she said, I got pulled over by a cop today. She said, I was driving home from chemotherapy. And I realized that I might die never feeling the wind in my hair again. And so I rolled down the windows and I sped on the highway. And I let the wind whip through my hair. And it was pulling the hair off of my head. And she's like, I was going 85 and a 55. And I got pulled over by a cop. And she's like, you know, this is Florida. They might bury me under the freeway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, the cop pulls her over and comes up to her window and says, what are you doing? And she says, I'm dying of cancer. I wanted to feel the wind through my hair. And the cop says, get out of the car. And she's like, oh, I'm going to jail. Like I was going 40 miles over the speed limit. She gets out of the car. And the cop hugs her Oh, and says, I'm not going to let you die today. I'm not going to let you speed and die today. I'm not going to let you die before you beat this cancer's ass. You are going to survive this. You are going to win. Hugged her, put her back in the car, and followed her home. Let her drive as fast as she wanted. And she's like, can you use that? And I was like, yes, I can use that. And so in the short story, Mazel in the Low Desert, I wrote a scene where she encounters Rabbi David Cohen after having gone through essentially the same thing, and he has that same conversation with her. And she just loved it. I mean, it was it, like, it you know, it made her year. And she ended up eating that cancer, which was great. Um, and I, I got to write this amazing, badass, bald FBI agent for her in low desert. And then, you know, a year later I'm writing gangsters don't die. And she emails me and she's like, I've had a recurrence of the cancer, but I'm sure I can, I can beat it. And I didn't hear from her for like three weeks. And a friend of hers emailed me and said, I don't know if any of her friends know that you guys are friends. I don't know if anyone in her life knows how close you guys are, but she passed away. The cancer overtook her body and she died in three weeks. And she was like, you know, you were, your books were really important to her, and I wanted you to know that she had passed away. And I, I was just in the beginning phases of the of the novel at that time, and I knew that that character was going to be in the book. And I decided, you know, these other gangster novels I've written haven't had a single hero in them, not one, not one hero. And I decided I'm going to put a hero in this one. And so I made Christy Levine the hero of this book. And that changed the way I looked at writing these gangster novels. Wow, that was worth the price of admission right there. <clears throat> All right, so I want to back
0: up one quick thing. I'm going to sound like an idiot when I ask you this question. because I and think you, you will not, I promise. I think you've already answered it. And I, and I just want to be crystal clear because I'm so enamored with this book. So are you telling me that Sal Cupertine started with that first book of the trilogy then, right?
1: Actually, he started in a short story called Mitzvah. That appeared in my short story collection, Other Resort Cities.
0: Okay. And then you picked them up. Right. Okay. So now I know that I'm going to, in my spare time, whenever that is, I need, to, I have to go back and start the whole series because I was so taken with him. And now, so I don't say anything, uh, give anything away. Now that I have heard this story, it gives even more punch and more significance to this book. I mean, it's, you know, I, I'm not one for cliches and modeling and being over eh, zealous and blowing up your skirt and so forth, but it's just such a powerful, good book. So, there. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I feel good about it. You should. And I got a two part question, and it's funny. Would you call yourself a. Um, a fan of classic happy endings first part and secondly do you think they're do you think right and wrong are absolute so it's kind of a double whammy loaded question that uh for those who've read the book will really appreciate that
1: i do not believe in happy endings there's actually you know what i hate i mean and this is this is crazy because of course it's in like half the crime novels you and i both love sure i i hate a crime novel where the badass detective or whatever at the, he's killed like 17 fucking people in a novel. He saved the girl and at the end he turns to her and says well, that was something. And they kiss and they walk off into the sunset or whatever. I'm like, dude you're going to have PTSD for the rest of your life. You disemboweled a Cuban gangster. You yeah. like, cut someone's throat. And... Yeah. Or even like the end of the movie Speed, which I'm a big fan of. Mm-hmm. I love Keanu. Keanu and anything is good. At the end of Speed, Keanu and Sandra Bullock embrace and they make out on the tarmac or whatever, and you're like, Really? Yeah. After all that? Yeah. Your best friend just blowed up. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, so that, yeah.
1: So I believe in ellipses
0: at the end, not yeah. periods. Well, it's funny that you made a comment in is it the Talmud? You said do you did you you're speaking to this one particular person and you said, Did you have you got to the end yet? And she says, I think it's, she says, no. And you said, yeah, it ends with an ellipses. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I love that. Now, having grown up in a super strict Christian home um, and having shifted some of my belief systems since then, we'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I got gotcha. I'm <laughs> like, Jesus, why couldn't there be an ellipses at, at the end of Revelations and, yeah. and, and have somebody go and uh, another thing? I'll <laughs> oh, figure it out,
1: you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah and uh, you know look when i i i believe books are supposed to be a um you know an imagination of your life and nothing nothing ends until the end you know nothing ends until that last day you never know who's going to pop back up into your life um and so you know i believe in 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 concluding storylines in a satisfactory way but no one ends happy in anything you know no. and in this book I was trying to give everyone the ending that they deserved or that they'd earned, which is two different things right? um, from the previous three books um, to satisfy the readers, but also to satisfy the story itself. I'd left a lot of stuff hanging. Yeah. um, And I wanted to make sure that I, that I tied up what I could, but also I'm not one of those people that feels like you have to tie up everything. There's some things that last forever. Some things, some mysteries that never die.
0: I was just going to say one of my favorite things about a good movie is l- let let it hang. Let me figure it out. Let me think about how I want it. Because then you, the, the filmmaker is giving the viewer a gift by saying, I've laid all this out. I've, I've spent years creating this. Now, how about you create your own resolution? I love right. that.
1: Right. And that's why I loved for as a kid, not getting to the end of a choose your own adventure. Like, I would read those books and I would flip forward. And if it's at the end, I just keep going. I just find some other page and keep reading. Well,
0: when I mentioned the Christian upbringing and then your Jewish upbringing, I was sitting there going, Do you suppose that part of our being drawn to the dark side of human nature is because we were in this overly protected world? And I use that term specifically because Christian, well, both of us have a certain. Have grown up with a certain faith that is enclosed in a belief system that is protective. Right. I, Cause I have a lot of friends who didn't grow up around any of it and go, you no. know, it's just free for all for everything. So I wonder if that is part of the mechanism by which we are drawn to that darker side. If that makes any sense at all.
1: Yeah, it does though. You know, my family were not, we are not religious at all. Um, you know, we, my mom was first generation american our family you know escaped from ukraine uh in 1919 um and my mother was born in walla walla washington but she was and her our family was not devout even then um by the time our grandparents were adults they were not devout they went to temple and that sort of thing but you know we're not they didn't wear yarmulkes or anything right um but of course they couldn't because they were in walla walla washington and they had to you know try not to draw too much attention to themselves um though they ended up running the city and all that sort of thing um but nevertheless we were not raised necessarily with faith what we were raised with was culture and there's a difference in that uh-huh. um but specifically the conversations i had with my grandfather um were a lot about what it means to be a jew um culturally but also what it means historically to be a jew you know, I, I wrote a piece for the L.A. Times um, a couple weeks ago on Thanksgiving about memory and about, you know, what's shared from generation to generation. And I have this very vivid memory of my Papa Dave telling me um, as a young boy that we are not hide in the attic Jews. We are fight you in the street Jews. And I've used that in the book. Um, because it it tells you about resilience, yeah, you know, and it, it tells you about passivity, and it tells you about the willingness to fight for the things that you love. And those were the kinds of lessons that were passed down to me more than any religious stuff. It was like, you will take care of your family. Yeah. The family is the most important part of it. And by extension, um, you will take care of other people that, that are in need. I found out an amazing story the other day, David, that I had never heard before. Um, there's this graphic novel that came out a couple weeks ago. I in the title, I've forgotten, but it's about fishmongers. I I swear this one will come around to us. It's about fishmongers in Seattle and their relationship with the Jews of Seattle. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> this article came out about this book, and the author was interviewed, and he was talking about um, you know the 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 history between oppressed societies in the Pacific Northwest, particularly during World War II, because, of course, the Japanese in in Washington State were interred. And just sort of as an offhand comment, this guy's being interviewed, and he says, well, you know, historically the Jews have always been very good to the Japanese locally. You know, for instance, the Bear family of Walla Walla paid for the mortgages of all the interred families. And I'm reading this, and I was like, that's my family. My middle name is Bear. That's my grandfather. And I was like, what is this? And like, it opened up this this vessel to find out this story. And it turns out that when when these Japanese families were interred during World War II, my grandfather and his cousins paid their mortgages. Never told them who did it. They just did it. And also paid and kept their business taxes current to keep their businesses open. And I was like, why didn't anyone tell us this story? No kidding. Why did I have to go research this to find this out? Why did I stumble on this in an interview with someone I don't even know? And so that's the kind of thing that that's the kind of Jews we were. Right. And that's always been the kind of Jews we were not religious, but uh, about helping others and about articulating injustice where we see it.
0: Well, that, that uh, explains to me, or helps me understand that the heart and uh, the heart in your story, because that doesn't just happen. You're you're not just a softy guy. There's something that really has to resonate.
1: Well, I'm also soft. Well,
0: you're a okay. Yeah, <laughs> you and your brother. I can see that.
1: Lee <laughs> is not soft. <laughs> he's doughy.
0: <laughs> oh, he's gonna so get you for that. This isn't gonna be good. <laughs> so this is the thing about this story between the heart and the moral ambiguity i'll use that phrase Mm -hmm. the way it does that dance throughout the entire book is is probably the single best piece my favorite part of the whole story besides the characters but i mean i don't want to belabor that point but it's just so good um Uh, I I don't want to keep you all day long. I do want to touch on something because, uh, Tammy was my wife and I were talking last night. We'd come off of a movie marathon and she knew I was interviewing you today. And she asked, why was I intrigued with you? (laughs) And I said, because there's, there's always a reason almost for every book I'm reading. There's a reason I'm reading it. She goes, she, and she always asks the good questions. Why are you intrigued with him?" I said, well, it's not just that he's a good writer. It's because he's a smart writer. And I know that sounds fluffy, except for the fact that I'm like, the guy, the guy has an MFA in creative writing. He's, you know, he's an adjunct professor. He directs a low residency MFA program at UC Riverside. You don't get wrapped up in that world and live that all day long and not have this uh, profound, uh, wisdom and knowledge. So I said, I want to I want to hear the way he thinks and I because I know how he thinks in this in storytelling, which is so <laughs> outside the box and and dense, but I do want to hit on the education. Did sure. you start and, and I'm gonna do this, was teaching and higher learning always something that you wanted to do, Todd?
1: Yeah, I, I love being a professor. Um it it was always something I wanted to do. And and to be fair, You know, it's something that my brother really hammered home, which was that you always got to have a second thing because there's going to be years between projects. Yeah. And if you want to eat, there's always got to be a second thing. And so my second thing has always been teaching. (laughs) Excuse me. Um, So I always wanted to be a professor. And, you know, for me, as soon as my first book came out, I got a job at UCLA. And that sort of just set me off this this path. And then when I got hired by UC Riverside in 2007, to start an MFA program, that was sort of the culmination of, of sort of a dream that I had had, that I have a philosophy of teaching that I think is successful. And I think that can help other people. And we just celebrated the 15 year anniversary uh, last month. Um, when you're listening to this, but yesterday, when in, in real time, um, of the of the MFA program, and in 15 years of running this MFA program, and it's a program w- for writers who write fiction, nonfiction, screenwriting, TV writing, and playwriting, I've had over 500 graduates of this program, and over 75 percent of them have gone on to publish or produce their work which is a huge number. It's a huge number. <laughs> and we had this great anniversary party where 250 alums came back, which is also a huge number. And how I got this head cold that you can hear because I hugged every single one of them. Yeah. Um. But, you know, what? what I've tried to do as a professor for these many years is instill in them the notion that this is a business. You know, it's not the writing gallery. It's the writing business. Right. And to treat their art as as commerce and to not be satisfied with this notion that you have to struggle for your art like we should get paid and we should get paid well for the things we do and so what i try to do running an mfa program is position my students to be successful in the real world i don't want a bunch of enlightened baristas i want people with their novels out i want people working on tv shows and making movies and that's what's happened. I've been extraordinarily wow. lucky to, to have amazing students who've come to the program and each and every one of them have gone out there and, and done. It. Well, in the last
0: part of that conversation that I was having with Tammy, I'm like, I, and I, 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 if I call her in here, she'd go, yeah, he actually said that. I'm like, if I had the time and the money and the proximity, I would so i would so come get an mfa uh under your tutelage because
1: but here's the thing david you don't need proximity it's a low residency you only need to be there 10 days twice a year get that cash bro oh that's it (laughs) that's it (laughs) you're online and then you're in person for 10 days in june 10 days in december oh
0: yeah okay Well, i don't have any excuse now except the money
1: or if you really promote this, I could probably just move some cursors around and get you a new. MFA. <laughs> I got that kind of power, wow! Yeah, that is that's worth that. Oh yeah, look, I bring that. I bring that gangster mentality to higher education. You want a degree? Let's see what you can do for me. Yeah, what can you do for me? Hey, <laughs> what David, can you do for me? <laughs>
0: come over here, nah. Come over here, get close.
1: I will tell you uh, an amusing story. Another brief one. Hmm? We were. So, our MFA program, the low residency, meets at a at a resort in the desert that actually was a, a popular mob destination in the '50s. And this is a few years ago. they had this AV company that came in and they wanted to charge us a bunch of money that wasn't in the contract for stuff. Uh-huh. And my associate director is a, is a business guy, and so he usually handles these meetings, and I was like, "Let me handle this meeting." And he said, okay. And so we get to the meeting and he's like, are you sure about this? He's like, because these people are trying to juice us for like $100,000. And I was like, I'm sure I know how to handle this. Yeah. You get to the meeting and uh, these guys are like, yeah, we lost a lot of money in the pandemic. You know, the prices are going up. You know, I know renting a microphone was $9. Uh, now that's $16. Yeah. And I said, okay, well, how about this? How about I give you nothing? <laughs> And the guy, the AV guy was like, what? And I was like, how about I pay the fine for breaking the contract and you get nothing? And we go somewhere else. How about I give you nothing? And he's like, what? What? What are you saying? And the people from the hotel were like, uh, you know what? No, it's fine. It's covered. We got it it handled. We got it handled. And and my associate Agam was like, "What was that?" And I was like, "That's the Godfather." Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, but I give you nothing. I give I, you nothing. I love that story. All right. La- <laughs> next to the last thing, because yes, you sir. and I were chatting back at Bauchercon when you were talking about, and I said I should get you on the podcast, and you said almost quote, "Well, you you do know that I had one of the most." top and most impressive literary podcast in the entire world true and i'm like <laughs> really yeah what's it called literary disco and i'm like okay i want to listen to it just for the title alone so a couple of questions here real quick are you still doing it because i drilled down on it the last couple of days and the last gig was i want to say november of last year
1: we are on hiatus uh-huh. uh, because our co-host writer strong Um, Is currently hosting one of the most popular, no matter the subject, podcasts on the planet called Pod Meets World, which is a re-listen of his show that he starred on as a kid, Boy Meets World. And so while he's been doing Pod Meets World and I've been writing a new book and Julia has been raising a child and doing her own stuff, we sadly put it on hiatus. But David? Yes. 12 years of shows that's impressive 12 years 12 yeah 12
0: yeah i'm feeling good at two and a half and i i'm feeling about this tall right now i believe it was the washington post who called us the best literary podcast on the planet oh you mean that little rag it might make it one day
1: we this is the true story (laughs) we uh not that i've lied previously good (laughs) housekeeping Uh uh-huh named us the best literary podcast. I was like, number one, good housekeeping still in business. <laughs> and number two, like who's reading good housekeeping. Yeah. Still? And then number three, it's like, and they're listening to me and the star of boy meets world talking about books. Yeah. What's wrong with these people? <laughs> Very curious. No, we, we absolutely loved doing literary disco. Um, and I think we'll do it again at some point. um, but Ryder has been so successful with Pod Meets World, they do live shows in arenas. Oh, jeez. There are thousands of people. And uh can't stop a man from doing that. No, it's but, like smartless
0: that way that thing is blown up.
1: It's and very very similar. Yeah. Very similar. And we always did very well with literary disco is always very popular, but it wasn't it wasn't like that. Um, but l- for listeners, so for those of you who are picking this up because I'll be promoting my appearance here, if you're wondering. Do Ryder and Julie and I still speak on a regular basis? Yeah. The answer is yes. <laughs> the conversation continues unabated on our texts.
0: Nice. Well, that's good to know. Two, two more things. Uh does this book, Gangsters Don't Die, is this going to be? Please tell me yes. And if there's anybody on the planet between you and your brother, you're gonna be, you're gonna be saying yes to this. Are there plans that we can see this on either a large screen or a smaller one, say, in our living room? Yes. (laughs) Yes! (laughs) How far into it? You don't have to tell me any details. Just give me an idea.
1: Well, here's what I'll tell you. We have a brand new deal that will be announced probably by the time this show comes out. Okay. And when we're done recording, I'll tell you what it is. Okay. Um, But it will be significant, and you'll be excited by it. Dude. Um previously it was in development for several years at Amazon and um unfortunately it got turned around during the pandemic um but we were very far along with it at Amazon um and I wish I wish it had gone it was a great team that we had working on it there um but this new team that we have this new deal this new network <laughs> that's all you're going to say all I'm going to say okay
0: <laughs> then I'm going to leave you with the closing question because this is how I close every show and I ask my guests, what is their best piece of writing advice? And you, you're going to have a doozy because you're out there doing it. You're doing it with this trilogy of four books. You're doing it with your MFA program. You know, what is that best writing advice?
1: Best piece of writing advice I can give. I actually got from Donald Westlake, the great Donald Westlake. I had the, the, wonderful time of spending a day with Donald Wesley. Actually Lee was there too. So I had interviewed him at the LA times festival books. Um, and then we just palled around all day. We went to a party together. It was me and Lee and Donald Wesley. And it was, um, it's one of those days that in memory, I can't believe it happened. Like, why did he want to hang out with me and Lee? Yeah. But he was so charming and so kind and such a gentleman, and had such great stories to tell. Um, but at one point, we were chatting about craft, and I said, you know, this is early in my career. This is way before I'd written these books. I, was, I, was, I had just written, um, I just started writing uh, my collection of stories, Other Resort Cities, which came out in 2009. Um, and I said, you know, I'm having real trouble with endings in my books and my stories, when do you know when to end? And he said, I know a story is over when the reader could write the next page. And it seems like simple advice, but when you think about it sort of broadly across an entire novel, it's like, right, be constantly surprising. (laughs) If the reader could write the next page, chapter to chapter, scene to scene, book to book, whatever, go back and rewrite it. And I have to tell you, it fundamentally altered the way that I look at writing. It changed the way I looked at building scenes because now in every single scene, I try to make sure that there's something strange, something beautiful and something unexpected so that the reader could not write the next page. That is so powerful, dude. And, and from Westlake. God. Cause look, if Donald Westlake wasn't born, I'd be selling insurance in, you know, Boise or something.
0: Oh, that is so well done. Well, folks, once again, the, book's, the book is Gangsters Don't Die. Uh, if you want to learn more, go to toddgoldberg.com. Visit him on all the social groovy websites like I do. Dude, this has been so good. Thank you.
1: Thank you. It's, it's been a dream to be on here. Good times. And, hey, listeners, just remember, I'm the better Goldberg. Let's never forget that, okay? <laughs> thanks again
0: todd what a genuine pleasure okay folks we are closing in on the end of 2023 and as we've done in the past the thriller zone is putting together our year-end extravaganza hosted by yours truly but more importantly co-hosted by my lovely brilliant and talented wife tammy On this Friday's 163rd and final podcast of 2023, tune in as we share some of the highlights of the past year and a stack of our favorite books, movies, and television shows we've enjoyed this past year. As always, it promises to be all sorts of holiday fun. So until then, I'm your host, David Temple, saying enjoy the rest of your holidays, and I'll see you next time for another edition of The Thriller Zone.